Let's now turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. You should all be proud of me. I was tempted, very tempted, to name this message, to give it the title, Praying When You're Down in the Mouth. I came real close. But rather, I'm entitling this message, Devotions Out at Sea. Now, I have prayed and had devotions in some very interesting places, very unusual places. I have climbed mountains because I wanted the view and wanted to get alone with God and have a quiet time, as people call it. I have had some great times on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane overlooking Jerusalem when I've been there. I've even prayed and had devotions next to a Hindu temple when I was in India. But if there were a contest of the most unusual places to have devotions, Jonah would have won. Because in this belly of the great fish, out at sea, somewhere in the Mediterranean, Jonah prays to God. In fact, the entire second chapter, except for the introduction and the conclusion, is entirely written about Jonah's prayer because this is the point that he turns from his own stubbornness. It is sort of a pity that in all of the literature about Jonah that the fish takes center stage. Everybody's worried about the fish. Was it a fish? Was it a whale? How did it work? And everybody's so worried about what's going on inside of this great fish that they miss what's going on inside of Jonah. That's the whole point. And so that's why chapter 2 sort of becomes the pivotal point of this entire book. This is how God gets a hold of his prophet. There once was a farmer that had three sons. Sons' names were Jim, John, and Sam. They didn't care about spiritual things. They never wanted to go to church. They didn't care at all about God in their lives. The preacher in the community tried to witness to them, bring them to church, invited them several times. Could care less about God. Leave us alone. One day, a rattlesnake bit one of the sons named Sam. The doctor was called in. doctor thought, I can't do much. He's going to die. Probably. He may recover, but very, very grim outlook. So then they call in the preacher, who's been trying to invite them to church for years to appraise the situation. He looked it over, and he prayed out loud to them this prayer to God. O wise and righteous Father, we thank Thee that in Thy wisdom Thou didst send this rattlesnake to bite Sam. He has never been inside the church, and it's doubtful that he has in all of this time ever prayed or even acknowledged thine existence. Now we trust that this experience will be a valuable lesson to him and will lead to his genuine repentance. And now, O Father, wilt thou send another rattlesnake to bite Jim, (laughs) and another to bite John, and another really big one to bite the old man? For years we have done everything we know to get them to turn to thee, but all in vain. It seems, therefore, that what all of our combined efforts could not do, this rattlesnake has done. We thus conclude that the only thing that will do this family any real good is a rattlesnake. So, Lord, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes. Amen. I say, whether it's a rattlesnake or a great fish, send them, Lord. 
whatever it takes to bring a person back to submission to you. You could summarize chapter 1 with the title, Running from God. And then you could title chapter 2, Running to God. In chapter 1, he runs further and further away. He leaves his home near Nazareth, a place called Gath Hefer, we talked about in our first study. He had to walk 60 miles to the only port, Joppa, get on a boat, go out to the Mediterranean Sea. Then he says, throw me overboard. Every step he's running from God until we get to chapter 2. Now we have him quickly scampering back to God in this prayer. It's a great, great prayer. There's only 10 verses in this chapter. Eight verses are the prayer. It's very short, only 45 seconds to read it out loud. Which goes to show you, though there are times, and we should seek those times, to have extended communion with God, there are certain times when we can't afford extended communion. Like a time of crisis. You just pray from your heart, and it works. And the example I like to use is the example of Peter, who was in a very similar situation. When he saw Jesus walking on the water, and he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and walk. Jesus said, come on, Peter. So Peter gets down from the boat and starts walking on the water toward Jesus until he notices how boisterous the waves and the sea is, and he starts sinking. As he's sinking, he doesn't have time for a lengthy, Oh, sovereign God, thou that in He died. So he prays three things. Lord, save me. Three words. That's it? You call that a prayer? How spiritual is Lord, save me? I don't care. It worked. And so Jonah, during this time, prays a very short, relatively speaking, if you were to time it, prayer to God, but a very beautiful, and I would say even a very eloquent prayer. Let's look at it, and then we'll make note on it. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of hell, or Sheol, the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Interesting description. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah does three things in this text. First, Jonah prays to the Lord. That's obvious. Second, Jonah ponders a lesson. That's verse 8. The one kernel lesson he learns is the eighth verse. And then finally, I would say Jonah passed the test. The negotiations were successful. Let's look at the prayer first of all, and I want you to look at when Jonah prayed. Verse 1, first word. Then Jonah prayed 
to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. Now, I want you to get that impact of that. Then is a word of time, and it refers to the previous verse. The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Do you get that? It wasn't until after three whole days and three whole nights of whale time that he prayed. I mean, at least you'd think the first five minutes he's saying, God, after three days and three nights, then Jonah prayed to the Lord. In verse 2, it says, And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction." And he answered me. Verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, or more literally, when my soul had collapsed and had fallen upon itself. You see, this is a description of being at the very end of your life, the very end of your rope, backed into a corner, up against the wall. Then I prayed. You see, there is no record at all in the book of Jonah of him ever praying before this point. Even though the pagan sailors aboard the ship all cried out to their own false gods, he didn't. And even when the captain said, hey, cry out and pray to your God, maybe he'll save us, he didn't. Only now does he lift a voice to God. Because now he's really confined. It's tight, it's hot and moist and stinks inside that gut of a fish. And at the end of his life, he starts praying to God. To help you get this in perspective, because here we are in a nice warm environment on soft, cushy seats, but let's put ourselves, if we can, in Jonah's place. One author's description is this, pitch black, sloshing gastric juices washing over you, burning the skin, the eyes, the throat, the nostrils. The oxygen is scarce and each frantic gulp of air is saturated with salt water. The rancid smell of digested food causes you to throw up repeatedly until you only have dry heaves left. Everything you touch has the slimy feel of the mucous membrane that lines the stomach. You feel claustrophobic. With every turn and dive of the great fish, you slip and slide in a cesspool of digestive fluid. There are no footholds, no blankets to keep you warm from the cold, clammy depths of the sea. For three days and three nights, you endure this harsh womb of God's grace. It took three days of this before he says, God. And his description in verse 5 is hilarious. The waters surrounded me. In other words, I'm really wet. I'm drenched. Even to my soul, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I don't know if you've ever been in a bed of seaweed, but it is very confining. It can wrap its little things around you and you're you're stuck. All you can do is cry out, kelp, kelp. (laughs) I woke a few people up. You got to picture Jonah inside there, seaweed around his head in this kind of environment. And now he prays to God. There is nothing like the confinement of pain, the confining aspect of pain. 
that causes us to wake up and sense our need for God. In fact, for some people, pain is the only wavelength that they'll tune into. They won't tune into anything else. They want to go their own way, do their own thing. Pain will get their attention. It's a time of crisis that awakens people. That's why whenever there's a Gulf War, churches fill up. That's why when there's an economic slowdown, people think, well, I wonder if there's a God. It's going to be very interesting to see how this Y2K crisis kind of pans out and how it may awaken America, we hope, for the need for the things of God. At the same time, it's interesting to note that during this deep, despairing time of Jonah, he's at the end of his life, the most desperate time in his life, that he prays such an eloquent, beautiful, poetic psalm almost. It is written in Hebrew parallelism, beautiful, poetic description. It goes to show you that some of the best things ever written, some of the best songs ever written, have been written during times of despair. Some of the songs that the church sings today are because of great men and women who have suffered great things and out of that time have written words that are immortalized. And sometimes musicians or artists will go through these deep times of being squeezed by God and they'll awaken with the greatest songs. A couple of examples of that. The song, Just As I Am Without One Plea, sung at every Billy Graham crusade when people come forward, was written by Charlotte Elliott when she became a helpless invalid. Such a beautiful song out of such a dark time. Frances Havergale, during ill health, wrote the song, Take My Life and Let It Be, Consecrated Lord to Thee. And then Fanny Crosby, who was blind from a very early age, wrote hundreds of songs, one being safe in the arms of Jesus. One of my favorite songs, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by Horatio Spafford when his wife and three children died out at sea, being drowned as the luxury liner went down. And he was wired back home that they all died. And the night that he heard they died, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Desperate, dark times, beautiful hymns of worship. Well, that's when he prayed. We should also notice how he prayed. If you read through this, and we just did, But if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, some of what Jonah prayed sounds very much like what David prayed. In fact, there are nine quotations or nine nuances of the Psalms of David that are in this prayer of Jonah. One quote from the book of Lamentations and one quote from the book of Job. They're not direct, full, accurate quotes as much as free renderings. But what it does show us is that Jonah's mind and heart was saturated with the scripture. He was not only saturated with the gastric juices of whales himself, but his mind was soaked with the Bible so much so that it oozes out at this time of desperation. Now, uh, I've, I've got to say in reading some of the books about Jonah that people are very suspicious of this prayer because they would say, now, wait a minute, nobody prays like this in a crisis. This sounds very poetic and beautiful and scriptural, almost like you'd have to have a Bic lighter inside that belly and a piece of paper and a pencil. "Mm, Let me think, what could I put now? this, This couldn't be during a time of crisis because during a time of crisis, one prays very spontaneously, like Peter. Lord, help. 
Lord, save me. But that's my point. When a person's at the very end of their life, they're about to die, they say that your life flashes before you. Life is sort of suspended. You recall memories of your youth in a very animated, slow fashion. And no doubt, here's Jonah ebbing in and out of consciousness. And these scenes are flashing into his mind. Perhaps the day when his mother shared these very scriptures with him. The first time he remembered them as a youth. And then later on, when he was vomited out, that's when he wrote down this prayer, this book. But the point is, is that at a time of crisis, at the time where he's losing his life, the scripture comes out. His mind, his heart is so soaked with the truth of the Bible that it comes out in his prayer life, which serves as number one, a warning, and number two, an encouragement. It's a warning because it shows us that no matter how much biblical truth you expose yourself to, it's no guarantee of a godly lifestyle. Jonah disobeyed. Jonah knew the scripture. The fact that he can quote this many Psalms, Lamentations, Job, I don't know how many of us could do that. Yet knowing all that stuff, he's been running from God. So you can expose yourself, you can go to church every Sunday, you can underline Bible verses, memorize all that stuff, but it doesn't guarantee that your life is pleasing to God or that you're obeying it. You may want to look at the Bible sort of like a very accurate map. The map has the ability to point you to the destination, tell you how to get there, but the map does not have the ability to transport you to that place. You have to cooperate with your own will. And so it is with the Bible. The Bible will tell you how to get to heaven, how to have a satisfied, fulfilled life. But just being exposed to the truth without cooperating with your own will, big deal. That's the warning. Now the encouragement. I think, I suggest, I encourage that you start using the Bible in your prayer life more and more. Know the Bible to the extent that it sort of oozes out the pores of your prayer life. Uh, By that, I don't mean you have to quote the book of Leviticus to God when you pray or use King James words like hither and thither and that that's somehow more biblical. But when we incorporate Bible language, biblical truth in our prayers, it does a few things. Number one, it elevates our perspective. It brings breadth, depth, to our prayer life. It delivers us from, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, type of prayers. The kind where you turn off brain and turn on mouth and just let the hose run. It elevates your perspective. The second thing that it does, it helps us pray according to the will of God. Paul was right in Romans 8 when he said, we don't always know what we should pray for as we ought. I agree with that. There's a lot of times I don't know what to pray in a situation. The Bible helps us. It gives us direction. Pray this way. This is how this guy prayed in this situation. Pray like that. And when I have that kind of direction, then I can have confidence. So what do you mean confidence? I mean this. 1 John chapter 5 puts it best. This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask... We know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. When you pray with the right direction and it's according to the will of God, you know it's going to happen. You prayed for it, God's going to do it. Well, how do you pray according to the will of God? 
by praying according to the Word of God. Because God reveals His will in His Word. It's like when you hang around somebody a long time, you get to know the person so well, you can almost second guess what they're going to say in a situation, what they're going to want. At a restaurant, you know what they're going to order because they order it every time. So the longer you hang out with a person, you know that person's mind. Not too long ago, it was 9 o'clock at night, and I said to my son, Nathan, it's 9 o'clock. Do you know what I'm going to ask you to do? He said, just like that, brush my teeth. How do you know that? Was it a miracle? No, he'd hung around me enough to know that at 9 o'clock I asked him, brush your teeth, get ready for bed. The more we hang out with God and are exposed to the mind of God and the Word of God, it will elevate not only our perspective, but help us pray according to His will. It will do a third thing for us. It will help you stay on target. Oh, we can digress into peripheral issues sometimes and miss the very heart, the important stuff when we pray, the heart of the matter. Go and study sometimes the prayers of Paul the Apostle, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians. See what he prays for, different believers. You find that he has that knack to cut through the fluff and pray for the very heart of the issues. It'll keep you on target. So that is how he prayed. Now let's just briefly consider what he prayed. The theme of this prayer is simply this, distress and deliverance. I'm in distress, and I hope you give the deliverance, God. That's sort of the theme of it. In verse 2, he says, I cried. At the end of verse 2, I cried. In verse 3, the theme would be, I'm wet. The theme in verse 4, I'm soaked to the bone. I'm going to die. In other words, I realize now this horrible situation is your response to my sin of running from you. I messed up, and I'm paying for it. I'm in distress. Lord, you give me deliverance. And he says that in so many words, very poetically, over and over again. In verse 4, there's an interesting little phrase. He prays, I have been cast out of your sight. Excuse me, Jonah. Excuse me. You've been cast out of God's sight. Didn't we read back in chapter 1, verse 3, and Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord? Didn't you run from God's sight? And now you go, I've been cast out of His sight. As if to say, the very thing I longed for, God has given to me. And in this case, this is not good. Sin always separates us from God. And He's acknowledging the emptiness in His life because of it. In verse 4, there is praise. He says, I will look to your holy temple. Verse 7, the same thing. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Then in verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Boy, what a change in this guy. From throw me overboard to this happy praise, Lord, please deliver me. Why the change? Because Jonah pondered a great lesson. Verse 8 sums it all up. This is his summary statement. This is the lesson he's learned from the fish gut experience. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Or, I would loosely paraphrase that, those who run from God tie their own noose. 
or to paraphrase it even more loosely, those who disobey God end up as whale vomit. However you spin it. If you run from God, you pay for it. You forsake your own mercy. Now, in my translation, which is the New King James translation, it says those who regard worthless idols. Don't think that Jonah has a bunch of little statues that he's bowing down to inside the fish or the great whale's stomach. The King James Version translates that same verse this way. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now, what does it mean? What is a lying vanity or regarding an idol? When you think of an idol, you think, oh, great, well, this isn't for me because I don't have idols in my house. I, I pray to God and I don't have any idols. Jonah had an idol. Its name was Jonah. It was himself. He was pushing his will over the will of God, and that is the very essence of sin. Whenever you say, my agenda, my will is more important than the will of God, that's the peak of idolatry. An idol can range from stone or wood or statues or cars or philosophies, or it can be yourself. And Jonah's idol was Jonah's own will. He was willing to go down to Joppa for it. He was willing to pay money for a ticket for it. He was willing to die for it. Throw me overboard. My will over God's will. That's idolatry. There's an old Jewish proverb, not in the scriptures, but in their other literature, that says there is no room for God within the one who's full of himself. He recognizes that. That's the lesson. God, I have been so full of myself that I have made no room at all for you. He had been praising and worshiping and serving himself. I told you before about that odd worship center temple in Kyoto, Japan. It's called the Temple of the 1,000 Buddhas. There's actually a 1,000 different likenesses of Buddha in one temple. Each likeness is a little bit different from the others, and the idea is the worshiper goes in the temple looks all around at the likenesses until he or she finds one that most resembles himself and then worships it. In a sense, it's self-worship. I'm worshiping my image, myself. That was Jonah's idol. This is what happens when you do so, according to Jonah. Verse 8, the second part, they forsake their own mercy. When you run from God, you run from your own good. When you run from your own good in the will of God, you're running from God's merciful, gracious dealing with you. And whenever you run from God's merciful dealing with you, you are now left to the chastisement of God, whom the Lord loves, he spanks, he chastens. So when you leave the will of God, when you serve worthless idols, your own self, your own idols, you're forsaking the mercy, the grace that could be yours. How often do we see this repeated? How often do we watch people, and you probably know who they are, maybe you're one of them, who are running from God, the plan of God, the plan of God for their lives, their families, their marriage, their businesses, and they forsake their own mercy. Why? Because the way God made us, it's all part of the deal. He made us that we'd only be satisfied when we're lined up with his will. We're only truly satisfied when we're obedient to Him, when we have a relationship with God. And no matter where else you turn apart from that, you come up empty. It's lifeless. It's worthless. You forsake your own mercy. 
It's sort of like you're thirsty, so you drink salt water. No matter how much salt water you drink, you're still thirsty. In fact, you'll die of thirst. I've been told that those who end up in shipwreck situations out in the ocean become deliriously thirsty to the point that they will even disregard the previous cautions. Caution being, don't, whatever you do, drink the ocean water. I know you're going to be tempted, but don't do it. But in becoming deliriously thirsty, they drink the water and they die of thirst. Why? Because the ocean water has seven times more salt than your kidneys can process. And so they demand fresh water to flush out the overload of salt. So you drink more salt water, you die of thirst. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So no matter where else you drink, whatever else you pursue, outside of the plan of God, you come up thirsty. You forsake your own mercy. I want to press that a little more, a more sobering thought. If you are living your life rejecting Jesus Christ as the hope of your salvation, and in the process you have elevated yourself, your intellect, your agenda, and that is what you are serving, you are forsaking your own mercy eternally if you keep living that way. And you do it to yourself. There was a young man raised in Switzerland, Christian home, heard the gospel. He came of age and he rejected the gospel. He heard the plan of salvation. He said, frankly, I don't want to hear it. In fact, I want to avoid Christians. I'd like to get away from my home. I'm tired of these people with their God talk. So his mom, with tears in her eyes, packed his bags, and he left home. That evening, bags packed. He got on a train to some destination. While he was on the train, wouldn't you know it, behind him were two guys speaking about the Bible, quoting verses. And he overheard it. He got so mad. that man, I, I can't get away from this stuff. So he stopped at the next stop instead of going to his destination by train, went into a restaurant to have dinner all alone. And across from him were two ladies eating at a table discussing the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he overheard it. He's very, very upset at this point. He pays the bill, doesn't finish his meal, goes outside across the street. There's a ship, steamer, about ready to take off. He pays the fare like Jonah, gets on board, sets launch. Wouldn't you know it? The ship was filled with happy youngsters singing praise songs. They were on a retreat from their Christian school. He's going, I can't believe this. And he goes down to the bar. And he finds the captain. He says, could you tell me where a guy can get away from all these cursed fanatics? The captain looked at him with a grin and said, you could go to hell. There won't be any Christians there. And it woke him up, sort of dawned on him. He went back home to his parents. He gave his life to Christ. Because he realized, what am I doing? I'm running from God, but I'm forsaking my own mercy. And this is the end of it. You could go to hell. There will be no Christians there. Third and finally, look at verse 9. I call this, he passed the test. But... That's a good word after those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. There's a clue found in that verse. I will pay what I have what? Oh, he made a promise. He made some kind of 
vow, some kind of promise, some kind of turning, acquiescence to the will of God inside the belly of that great fish. Now, uh, what was that promise? We don't know, but judging from the rest of the book, it was something like, God, if you get me out of this alive, I give up. I'll go to Nineveh. I don't care what it takes. I'll preach to them. I will pay what I have vowed. It also says in that verse, but I will sacrifice to you. Now, how could a guy inside of a fish gut sacrifice anything? Is he going to, again, light a little Bic lighter and find an animal that may be in there with him and, okay, I'll cut it up and offer a sacrifice? I don't think so. That would give tremendous heartburn to the great fish, first of all. There's no record of that. I think what this means is he sacrificed his own will. Here's my will, my agenda. I've served it. Here, I get rid of it. I offer it to you. I now want to do your will. I'm ready to go your way. Not only that, but it says, with the voice of thanksgiving. Can you imagine being thankful in his situation? What does he have to be thankful for? The accommodations, the room and board? Thank you, Lord. This is great. I think what he is saying is, I am so thankful that you loved me enough to pursue me to turn my heart to you so that I can pray to you again. If you have ever backslidden and you've been away from God for a period of time, you know what it feels like when you finally give up and come back to Him. It's like, yes, this feels so good. Like the Rolaids commercial. Right? How do you spell relief? R-E-P-E-N-T-A-N-C-E. Repentance. That's how you spell relief. And when you come in repentance to God and you give up, oh, it feels so good. Thank you, Lord. So, he passed the test. The whale worked. The seaweed was very successful. Now look at the very last phrase, and we'll close with this. This is what he had learned as well. Salvation is of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Jonah is being saved from Jonah. From his own will, from his own idol, Jonah is being saved from Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, we who live on this side of the cross in the New Testament, when you hear that phrase, your ears should perk up. Because that phrase, salvation is of the Lord, is exactly what the name of your Savior means, Jesus. Jesus is the anglicized Greek word of the Hebrew Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation. The angel told Joseph, the father, foster father of Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what I've learned. He learned the gospel. He learned that the, the very job description of God is to save people. Prodigal prophets, Ninevites, that's what he's about, salvation. So have you been running from God? Do you sense the bite of rattlesnakes at your heels? Whales coming after you? Do you feel like God's getting your attention? Has he been dealing with the idol of self in your life? Your will, your way? Maybe God's chasing you, and you know it. A young man wanted to join a church in the South. The board of deacons said, well, tell us your testimony. He said, here's my testimony. God did his part, I did my part. That's my testimony. They said, well, could you explain? What do you mean by that? What do you mean God did his part, you did your part? He said, okay, I'll explain. His answer was good. God's part was the saving, he said. My part was the sinning. 
I sinned. I ran as far and as fast as my rebellious heart and legs could take me. But God chased me. And God got a hold of me. And let me just say that if you feel like you're being pursued by God, by the hound of heaven today, good. May God send bigger and better rattlesnakes. Whatever it would take, I have sometimes prayed for people. Lord, whatever it would take for that person to awaken to the fact of your grace, your mercy, your love, to get their attention, to give their life to you, send it. Because nothing is more important than that. And if you're sensing God doing that in your life, chasing you, you might as well pull a Jonah. Give up. Sacrifice your will to the Lord. Quit regarding worthless idols. And take His solution. Let's pray. Father, as we close now, we pray that if we, any of your children are running from you, running from a mission, a commission, a calling, a duty, that we would cease going our own way. Cease and desist and turn back to you. Because we know we'll never be fulfilled until we do. We know too much. We've experienced too much. Then, Father, I would pray for anybody else who has come, those that don't know you, those that have heard the gospel, those who have heard of your love and grace, but they also have been resistant to you calling them. I pray that today they would cease, they would turn, they would repent and come to you. Lord, you are so loving and so forgiving. Lord, if there are any who have backslidden, they've gone their own way and very much like when they were in the world. Lord, I pray that you'd bring them back home to you because they're so miserable. May they cry to you from the depths.